Good morning. There are really only two basic ways to learn wisdom. Uh, first, we can, we can learn wisdom from others. And, and there's a, a lot of options here. You, you can learn from a parent, a teacher, a pastor, a church. Uh, you can learn from watching someone else's mistakes, learn, learn what not to do as you see them practice failure and want to avoid that failure. I encourage you, the, the most important way you can learn wisdom is taking up the book of Proverbs, especially young folks, the, the, the way God would want you to hear his wisdom for how to live this life. So we can learn wisdom from others, or we can learn it on our own, our way. This is for us do-it-yourself wisdom folks. We like to DIY. This is the classic crash, burn, fail, and learn model. Some of us insist upon because it's not authentic wisdom unless I learned it on my own. We all need wisdom from outside, and what I want to encourage you today is consider how you might learn wisdom from above, from God. There is a third option in that you never learn. You refuse to learn from others' mistakes. You, relearn, you refuse to learn wisdom from, from God when he gives it. You, you refuse to, to listen to others. You, you refuse to even learn from your own mistakes. And, well, this is, this is what Belshazzar refuses to learn. Uh, last week, we saw King Nebuchadnezzar, a, a, a Babylonian king, testifying of Yahweh, the one and only God, who taught him Humility, who, who taught him about the one true God and how great he is and how to rule well. There, there was an instruction to what King Nebuchadnezzar wanted to, to give us, to, to worship the one only true God, to, to know what it means to be exalted by humbling yourself before the one true God. Well, this week we're, we're turning to a, a theme that's built off of the previous week. We're, we're, we're turning to the same theme of being humble, and God humbles the proud to... Well, really a warning. This is a warning for those who refuse to learn wisdom. Uh, Refusing to learn humility. Refuse to honor God. The the key concept from last week that we saw throughout it, and well, it's repeated this week. Know that God most high rules over all the affairs of men. Know that God most high rules. This week, our message, uh, the simple summary statement. Honor God who humbles the proud and measures with justice. Honor God who humbles the proud and measures with justice. Well, We'll look at it in three parts. First, verses 1 to 16, God disrupts dishonor. God disrupts dishonor. Uh, 17 to 23, God corrects dishonor. God corrects dishonor. And then uh, verses 24 to 31, God judges dishonor. Uh, The first sermon I gave uh, an explanation of how why many doubt the book of Daniel historically because they believe, well, a book couldn't have told what was going to happen later in history so accurately. And so they, 
They believe the book had to be written around 200 years before Christ, not 600, because of how accurately it portrays what is going to uh, happen that has not yet happened. Uh, to, to put a date here, King Nebuchadnezzar, the last week that we had three messages on him, we had three chapters of him, he dies 562. Everything we have learned of him happened before 562. Uh, Belshazzar is not the next king. The events that we're reading here in chapter 5 are from 539, when, when, when the Persian army uh, conquers Babylon. Uh, they're, they're, he's not the next king. And I, I want to come back and think about the history of this, because many will doubt the book of Daniel. Again, to remind you, there, there, there's details information that only somebody in the uh, 600 years before Christ would have known. So the writing seems to have every evidence of somebody who is much later in the 600 years before Christ. Uh, many have uh, did criticize the book of Daniel because there was no evidence of Belshazzar ever existing. And not to be too critical of the critical scholars, but now there's other external evidence that someone named Belshazzar was a, a, a governor, a vice regent in Babylon. It's really, when, when all the evidence is, is given, when all the information is, is known, the Bible has proven true. Uh, the, the other question that oftentimes comes up is, well, Belshazzar isn't a direct descendant of Nebuchadnezzar. He, he's not a son, because it, it reads over and over again, King Belshazzar, the son of Nebuchadnezzar. Well, uh, Nabonidus is the biological father of uh, Belshazzar. It, it, it looks like possibly there's a way of, of, of following some lines where Nebuchadnezzar is his grandfather. So there is a bloodline. And, and this is the way the Bible would speak of sonship. Jesus is the son of David. Right. There's a way in which that doesn't have to be that direct descendant to be in the line. But it also could just be royal line. Again, not, not, a, not a significant factor as we think about the, the, the point of the, the presentation of what's happening. Well, the third criticism is that we have no evidence of Darius the Mede existing. And we know that Cyrus is the one who besieged and conquered in 539. Uh, some believe Cyrus may have taken on the name of Darius at this time, uh, him having a, a mother who was a, a Mede. That, 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 that's possible. The other is Darius the Mede is the governor that he put in charge of Babylon as he continued to go on conquering. So we have no, no record of Darius the Mede. But we also used to not have any record of Belshazzar. Sometimes in our apologetic and somebody says, well, this couldn't, can't be true because we don't know of any other source or reference to it. Sometimes we just have to apply the, the great apologetic question of Napoleon Dynamite. Kip, like anyone could ever know that. Right. When you're trying to say, well, we have no evidence of this. Well, there's evidence right here. And this book has been proven true over and over and over again. So we're going to look at what God has given us as a testimony Regarding Belshazzar, our first point, God disrupts dishonor. We see a new king. Again, this is about 23 years later. That It wasn't a, a direct line from Nebuchadnezzar to, directly to the very next king being Belshazzar. Uh, Belshazzar appears to have served really as a vice regent with his father. His father has fled during this siege, and therefore he is the, the primary authority in the city during this siege. Therefore, he is called the king. Here we, we see a great parties happening, and some people think, all right, this is a, a party in the fall that was a great feast to the gods. We see in the middle of a war, 
I mean, the, the, the Persians are frightening. In the same way the Babylonians would have been to Judah and, and to Egypt previously, the Persians are all around them. And, well, he decides to throw a party for a thousand people. That's a large party here and now. That is a huge party then. There, there, there's a way in which we kind of wonder, is Belshazzar, does he just think these walls are his protection? Is he, is he, is he, is he seeking to feast like this because he has so much trust in these walls that, well, you've already heard the, the, the ending read, it, it, they don't hold up for him. He, he's a, a king that's known to be somewhat cruel from what we know of him in, in history. And he throws this great party and he, he's, 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 they're, they're drinking and they're enjoying themselves. And all of a sudden he says to himself, you know what would great, go great with this wine? The golden vessels that, we took, that my father took from, from Judah. And so he, he requests that the golden vessels of, uh, uh, and the silver vessels that were in the temple of Jerusalem, that they should be brought into this party. And in and, and this party, getting drunk is not the worst thing most likely happening at this party. He wants to take the holy things of God and bring them in. And let's just flip back over because if our theme, our, 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 our primary theological truth is that God most high rules over the kingdoms of men, go back to Daniel 1. And just a reminder of how this whole book started. In the third year of the reign of uh, Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. God is the one who has put Judah in the hand of the Babylonians. And then notice, with some of the vessels of the house of God. These are not here by the power of the Babylonians. These are here in the authority and the power of God. God is ruling in a way that these vessels are there. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't seem to have ever abused them, but now we see he wants to take the holy things of Yahweh, of the Jewish people, and, and use them for a common purpose, and even more so, part of a gross party. Well, verse 4 really highlights the significant big problem. They drank wine from the vessels of God's holy temple and praised other gods. Instead of praising the God who created the gold and the silver, but instead of praising the God who is sovereign over all things, they praised the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Just to be very clear, it is sin to worship anything that's not God. It is sin to worship that which the creator has created instead of the creator. This is the sin that's taking place. This is the sin that's highlighted. It's, it's false worship. It's, it's defaming the very name of God by using his holy vessels for sinful purposes. And then verse 5. Notice the word immediately. Now, now. This could be suddenly, the word immediately, at what point during the praising did this finger appear? But it's very clear, it's, a, it's abrupt. It's absolute. Verse 5. The fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand so that it's, 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 it's visible. The, the lampstand there represents the light so that the king can see it. Now, this is, they're, they're all drinking, they're all partying, they're all having a great feast, and all of a sudden, a, a great hand appears and begins writing on the wall. 
And, and notice that the king saw it. As we've been going through Daniel, what appears, what they see, continue to stand out as kind of a, a motif of Daniel. And what's, what's very clear is seeing does not lead to believing. What they see oftentimes will correct false beliefs, and Nebuchadnezzar will kind of pull back some false beliefs, but, well, this seeing does not lead to believing. Here he sees the hand, and, and, and at some level has a proper re- response. Verse 6, his color changed. It seemed like all, all the, just, just, just white like a ghost, terrified. His thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, his knees knocked. It's almost like the, the cartoons, right? They're, they're, they're knocking the knees. They're, they're, they're visibly shaken. In response, he does what Nebuchadnezzar did when he had a dream that frightened him. Let's call all the enchanters, magicians. Let's call, let's call all the people who can know the magics and let's have them try to understand what this is and no one can do it. And so the end is verse 9. The king was greatly alarmed. His color changed. And the Lord's, all the party is now perplexed. Well, verse 10 introduces the queen. In 10 to 12, she, she, she seeks to help her husband. You know, there was this guy your, your dad always brought in, Nebuchadnezzar. He, 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 was, he was full of wisdom. I mean, look at the description of Daniel. He has the, the spirit of the gods. Verse 11, light, understanding, wisdom like the gods. He's ac- he has an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, solve problems. Remember back in chapter 2, it was very clear when Nebuchadnezzar was so shaken by this dream. Da- Daniel would be very clear. I, I have no power of my own, but God has made mysteries known. Here, his reputation has, has, has gone before him, and they, they believe he has this great power, and he does because God's given it to him. But as she sees her husband just completely perplexed as to what this writing on the wall could be, she suggests they bring Daniel in. Well, verse 13, Daniel comes in, and well, he makes the same promise to Daniel that he made to the enchanters. If you can tell me what this says, I will exalt you. Remember the theme is God exalts the humble. Well, this king thinks he's the one who exalts. The, 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 he, he promises Daniel, I'll give you, I'll make you third in the kingdom. I'll, I'll give you, give you great clothes. I'll give you a, a great, great gold. I'll give you all these great things. He wants to bless Daniel. What we see here is God has brought a great disruption to the dishonor that is being brought to His name. He, he brings a great disruption to 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 his uh, holiness being defiled he brings a great disruption to this kingdom with this finger writing something on the wall that well we'll find out more later we, we should be thankful that god does disrupt our sin Let, let's just be very clear the most terrifying words in scripture is god giving us over to sin that's romans 1 when God gives us over to sin, we keep going after sin deeper and deeper, and it becomes more destructive, and we never learn. God disrupting our sin is a grace, is a mercy that we should want. Our second section, God corrects dishonor. The party stopped. Daniel's been brought in. He's been promised many things. But, but Daniel makes it very clear. Verse 17, Daniel answered 
Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. Daniel is confident in what God has given him as the ability to know these things. And he also makes it clear, I, I don't need your gifts. I, I will make known what God has made known. Chapter 4, when, when Daniel gives the king, his, his final interpretation of, of what the, the picture of the tree being cut down means. Remember, he, Daniel gives this pastoral kind of added, right? It's, it's not part of the interpretation. Break off sin. D- Daniel invites him to repentance beforehand. Well, this message to Belshazzar has a whole different feel. But Daniel knew King Nebuchadnezzar. They, they were in the court together. Daniel seemed to have an, even an affection, or at least an honor towards this king. Uh, Daniel seems to have a little bit of a different posture, well, a significant posture difference towards Belshazzar. Our author has a different posture towards Belshazzar. He front loads the declaration before he interprets. The, the, the statement he makes, verse 18, O king, the God, most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. Now, he's wanting to go back. This is why chapter is built off chapter 4. The, the, they have the same theme. God humbles those who exalt themselves. But Daniel wants to give Belshazzar a history lesson, which has got to be somewhat frustrating for Belshazzar. Just tell me what the, what the words say, right? Just tell me what's on the wall. Why are you giving me this lecture? Well, Daniel has a message for the king that is tied to the words. He has to give the background as to what these words mean and why they were given. Notice what we read earlier in Daniel 1 verse 2, same exact declaration. God most high gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship, greatness, and glory, and majesty. The the one who exalts is the God most high. He is the one who is able to give. And then notice verse 19, because of his greatness, he gave him all peoples, nations, languages. They tremble for him. The, the authority King Nebuchadnezzar had. He gave life to everyone. He let people live whoever he wanted. He killed him everyone. Verse 20 is where the, the message really picks up. But, but that, that 18 and 19 is important. That God most high rules over all the kingdoms of men. No one has any authority or rule unless God gives it to him. And God had given that authority to Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 20 is where he starts recounting what we read about last week in chapter 4. But when his heart was lifted up. Remember, repentance is when his head was lifted up. He looked up to God. No, his, his heart is lifted. His heart is, is boasting. And his spirit was hardened. So that he dealt proudly. I believe that's referring to he dealt proudly with uh, the people that God had put under his, his rule. Then King Nebuchadnezzar, he was brought down from his kingly throne. And his glory was taken from him. Here verse 20, God humbles the proud and exalts the lowly. It's a full shorthand summary of what happened in chapter 4. But remember, Nebuchadnezzar's testimony was that God had taken away his reason. Here, Daniel is saying God had taken away his glory. We can't reduce the image of God, what God has given to us as his image bearers, to simply reason. 
But we also see that God has made us glorious. Because, well, as images of God, we're supposed to be able to reflect his glory. There, there, there is a glory God has given man inherently that we reject when we decide to worship anything and everything but God. But, but here, the glory of being the king, the glory of being great, that was taken away from him, as lo- along with his reason. And so, verse 21, he was driven out like a beast. He ate like an animal. The dew was on his back because he lived like a, a wild animal out in the, with, without shelter. Now, the significance is if we go back to chapter 4, verse 30, you can... Turn over there, you, you, one, one page over in my copy of Scripture. Remember, the king, he walks out, and maybe he sees the hanging gardens. And he, he says, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? That, that's the boasting. Look what I did for my glory. That, that, that's the event that, that then led to all of, that, that's the pride that led to, to this great humbling. Until he knew God most high rules. Now, if you go back to chapter 4 again, it opens, that's King Nebuchadnezzar telling his own testimony. King Nebuchadnezzar, if we go to chapter 4, verse 1. He wanted all the nations, all the peoples, all the languages. Everybody needed to hear about what God Most High had done for him and and praise that God for acting so justly towards him and making him live like an animal. Now, I'm certain Belshazzar knew that testimony. That, That is why... Daniel is telling Belshazzar and reminding him of all that God had done for King Nebuchadnezzar, making him great, humbling him so that he would be truly great, so that he would remember the lesson that God most high rules. Notice it's repeated there in verse 21. He was fed until he, 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 he ate like a, he, fed, he was fed like gra, uh, grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven. Until he knew that the God, most high God, rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he wills. He's been teaching this history lesson because it's a lesson that Belshazzar has not learned from. He knows of it, but he's not learned from it. Because verse 22, there's a turn. He goes from the history of what God had done with with Nebuchadnezzar to now you. Verse 22, and you, his son, Belshazzar, you've not humbled your heart. Though you knew all this. See, we go back to how do we learn wisdom. If you refuse to learn from the lessons God has given you, if you refuse to learn from those who God has put in your life, here. A, a grandson or a, a king who, who's following in the, the footsteps of Nebuchadnezzar, he should be looking back and hearing, what is the great testimony of, of the one true God and what has he taught me? Well, this is a judgment. Verse 22, you've not humbled your heart even though you knew what God had taught King Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 23, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. 
Not, not only have you refused to humble your heart, but you've, you've dishonored God. And, and, and here is referring to, I think, taking the vessels of gold and silver. The, the, the things that are meant for God's honor alone and using them for dishonorable purposes. You've lifted up yourself from heaven. You, you, you've not honored God. Let's just read 22 to 23 in its entirety here. And you, as son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart. There is a posture that you have had that's wrong towards God, even though you knew everything God had done. But you've lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven and the vessels of his house and have been brought in before you. And you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. We should not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways, you've not honored. That, that the first accusation and the, the last one, very important. No humility, no honor. Those two go together. Two sides of the same coin. Without humility, there is no honor. We see their actual accusations of what it looks like, but humility leads to honoring God. A, 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 a humility that is, well, we described last week as sanity. Just a, a right recognition of God and who we are. It leads to honoring God. There's something interesting here in that you've lifted up your heart against the Lord of heaven and where he gives all these explanations of you, you not only took the things of God, but then you praise their gods. The way he describes the gods is so interesting. You've praised the gods of silver, gold, or bronze, iron, and wood, and stone, which do not see, hear, or know. All right, let's just, let's just think about this. This is very kind of Isaiah 42. You're worshiping gods that have less ability than you do. All right, you see, hear, and know, but, but you're worshiping gods that don't see, hear, and know. Let's just throw out a, a, a basic principle of worship. You should not worship something dumber than you. Now, oh, we're laughing. We all worship stuff dumber than us. We all worship things dumber than us. And we make God in our own image we cannot worship a God who's smarter than us. That, that, that is the dangers of false worship. We're constantly wanting something we can manipulate. That's why we think we like things that are dumber than us. We can manipulate it. We can control it. We have some kind of uh, feeling of, of a sovereignty over it. What a true worship is supposed to be fully dependent. Fully underneath. The danger is you're worshiping a God that's no smarter than you. It's impossible. If we're making that God in our own image. Now, this is a stern, hard, straightforward rebuke. You're worshiping gods that, that cannot hear, know, speak. They're, 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 what, what good is this? And then the contrast. But the God in whose hand is your breath. And whose are all your ways you have not honored. You've praised these dumb gods, but the true God who is giving you right now the breath for you to live, you dishonor. 
The God in whom we live and move and have our being. The God whom we fully depend upon. If you want a memory verse from this text, the God in whose hand is your breath. The, the God in whom we do not have any life unless he sustains and gives and sustains it. What a fantastic challenge to just consider how how much we depend upon our creator. And that's important for us because we really think we're independent. Every breath is from the hand of God. Every way is, is, is ruled by him. We have a class on money going on right now during Sunday school. And as I was meeting with the teachers, obviously just the theme kept coming up, stewardship, stewardship. We think of stewardship as the things we have, but you have breath. Your life is meant to be stewarded under the God who created you. Meant to be stewarded under the God who's redeemed you. He, he's not distant. He, he, you're, you're dependent upon his very hand right now. The very hand that's written the judgment against King Belshazzar is the very hand that's giving him breath. And he's dishonoring him. This is the God whom we should completely depend upon. And we dishonor him. We, we, we want to pause here before we keep going with the text. And I, I really want to think through humility and honor because these two things are so necessary and important for the Christian life. Uh, humility and honor, the, again, the, the two sides of the same coin. True humility honors God by worshiping him as he deserves. True humility is sanity, seeking to know who we are as his image bearers, seeking to know what he designed us to be, what he designed us for, how we are to live, how we can rejoice greatly in him. True humility builds a great confidence. And I want to say that again because we too often think of humility as just another form of pride that is self-pity. Humility is not beating yourself up in ways that is just unbecoming of you, that denies the true greatness of what God's given to you. We would too often think of humility as somebody who walks around saying, I'm a failure, I'm worthless, or, or a yes man who disagrees. No, no, humility gives us a great confidence before God because we know him. Humility is fully dependent upon God and therefore grows confident in God. Humility is simply receiving what God has said is true. God has given man an incredible greatness. And, and, and we forsake that greatness for every other kind of greatness that we think is better. We, we can look around and we can see, wow, it's amazing how God created us and what man can do with our abilities. And then we can look around and say, it's amazing what we can do with our sin in destroying the things we create. We are a glorious ruin. Humility sees that it is God who has given us breath, it is God who gives us dignity. It is God who gives us any kind of real greatness. And if you think about that humility and honor, you might be thinking, I would never take the golden cup of the Lord from the temple and, and use it in such a way, but we no longer have those golden cups because we ourselves are that temple. You are the temple of God if the Holy Spirit indwells you. We are the temple of God being built up on the living stone, Jesus Christ, to be the temple of God. As we think about how ridiculous it is that he would take 
the golden cup in such a way and use it in such a defiling manner, what are we guilty of this week of how we've used the temple that God has made us in not honoring him the way he deserves or giving him thanks the way he deserves? Humility of the heart is practiced by honoring. There's an activity of how we honor, and our words are a significant test of how, we, how humble we are. Do we honor with our words, or do we tear down? Do we seek to build up, or do we seek to destroy? Here we've seen the theological lesson, the history lesson and the theology lesson, the personal rebuke before getting to the interpretation. God dealt greatly with your father. He brought down the proud so that he would be a good king. You have not learned this. You have not humbled your heart. You have not honored the one true God. Now, our last point, God judges dishonor. It's important we see this connection that he has dishonored the God in whose hand is your breath. And then verse 24 than from his presence. That is, the hand that has terrified you with what it is written, even though you don't know what it is, that hand came from the true God's presence, whom you depend upon for breath, and who determines all your ways. That that hand was sent by him, and the writing was inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. And this is the interpretation of the matter. Mene. God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. That one's repeated, I believe, because that's the grand theological declaration that, well, really just goes along with the lesson, know that God most high rules the kingdom of man. God has counted. That's, that's what Mene means. He, God, God has numbered. God has decided how many days you will have because that's what God has the authority to do. Tuckle. You have been weighed in the balance and found wanting. And Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians, who, in the context, are right outside. Now, now, now this is the interpretation. Daniel has led up to this with a grand history lesson, a grand theological lesson, God has numbered your days. Know that you are under the sovereign God just like King Nebuchadnezzar taught you, but you've refused to listen. Tackle's the one. You've been weighed. You, you've, you've, you've been put under the measure of God. You have, you have been put under his ways. And as he invites us to think of ourselves in light of what he says, when now he's saying God is measuring you based upon what he has said. And you've been found wanting. You, you've, you've not lived up to everything God has given you, not only as an image bearer, but as a king. There, 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 there's there's, there's a, a judgment here. How you've lived your life, how you've oppressed the poor, how, how you refused God, honor, you have not measured up to what God has declared. Regarding sin, this is a declaration of a sin. It's important we see God does bring judgment on evil kingdoms. We saw this with Nebuchadnezzar earlier. We'll see it throughout Scripture. 
We too often have a limited view of sin. Here, he's telling the king, they're, 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 he's deficient, right? He has deficient funds. It's as if you were to go buy a car and they look at your account and you say, you don't have the funds. You found wanting. There's, there's not enough. There's a deficiency. We too often think of sin as simply activity of rebellion. And so we could say, well, I've never dishonored God. I've never cursed God. I've never taken the golden vessels and done something, you know, gross with them. Well, those are sins of omission, but there's also the significant sin of, I'm sorry, that's the sin of commission. But there's also the, the sin of omission. We, we haven't done what we ought. This passage really parallels Romans 1. The judgment of Romans 1 is that they did not honor God or give thanks. It, that, that the judgment for all mankind is for not worshiping God as he ought. The judgment of God is that we will be found wanting when measured because we did not give him thanks for all the breath he gave us from his hand. We didn't honor him with all the ways he has given us the good things of this life and, and life itself. All humanity is guilty of this most basic sin. The only salvation is that God himself, in Romans 1 also, has brought about the power of the gospel that can save us from our sin against God. God's own son, Jesus Christ, came to pay the penalty for our not giving thanks and not honoring God by laying down his life, by dying in our place so that the measure of God's judgment is exercised towards him that we deserve so that God is righteous. The only hope we have for the way we have dishonored God is that Jesus would pay our penalty. This is an incredible interpretation. If we just go back, remember the color change, knees knocking. You would think that a guy who's that scared would become more scared. What's terrifying in this passage is he just goes about business afterwards. Remember the judgment earlier, King, Bel- King Nebuchadnezzar, he testified, and you knew it, and you still hardened your heart. The testimony he now has received from the very hand of God, there's no declaration of any repentance. At least Nebuchadnezzar rightly would stop and say, wow, this is truly the God of gods in some way. He just says, all right, let me get my purse out and let me give Daniel his, his nice purple cloth and some gold and you'll be great. That, that's what's terrifying about this passage. He didn't learn, he didn't learn, he didn't learn. The last night of his life, he doesn't learn. There's a hardness of heart. There's a lack of humility. There's a continual dishonoring. The, 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 the fear God blessed him with in the first part of the, the book, in verse 5, as the hand comes, that's that somehow dissolved, which doesn't make any sense. Last week was an exhortation, trust the God who can humble the proud. This week is a warning. Don't be like this king who refuses to listen or learn. As we looked at last week, there's a way in which Daniel gave the exhortation to Nebuchadnezzar. There's a judgment of God, and you can break off sin. And, and if you repent, God will relent. That, that's a true statement that is true of God's character throughout Scripture. But God is also just. 
He will and must punish every sin. Nebuchadnezzar is brought to a repentance. Belshazzar goes about business as usual. As we think about this, how eager are we seeking to learn from God his wisdom from above? As we we discuss God's word with each other, as we, we seek to fear him, that's the beginning of wisdom. As we seek to be the tree planted close by the very word of God so that we're growing strong in confidence in knowing him and his goodness and his mercy and his grace. That, that's the, the remedy for the hard heart that would continue to refuse God over and over and over again. If you're a, a youth, a young adult, a child, the book of Daniel is oftentimes used to challenge you to think about, will you be ready to stand like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego or Daniel next week? And I, I hope it does that. I hope it, I hope it prepares us all to, to think about what it means to be elect exiles. We might have to stand in persecution. But children, please learn from our testimonies to believe in Jesus Christ now and trust him now? Well, one of my favorite things on Wednesday nights, we, we share testimonies, and sometimes we'll get like six in a row, and it is just, it's, it, it just blows my mind. Because it'll be the same gospel that changes six different lives that are completely different. There's this one time, it, it, it still stands out like it was yesterday. There, were, there, were, there was about eight of them in a row, but there was two back-to-back that God just sovereignly put together. One was... I was raised in a Christian home. I do not remember a time where I did not know Christ or know of Christ, trust Christ, or believe I was a Christian. Praise God. The next testimony. While I was tripping LSD, I saw Jesus. So I decided to take up a pursuit of knowing who God is from his word. Praise God. He saves all different sinners in all different ways. But, 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 but the, the folks who have that former testimony... Well, let me be very clear. We all want our children to have that former testimony. What bothers me about the folks with that former testimony is they they look at us with that latter testimony and they think, wow, I wish I had something more to say. No, we wish we didn't have the baggage. Children, please do not delay. If you hear his voice, believe in him. Believe in him. Do, do not presume upon the grace of God or presume there's another day. Do not presume there's a time waiting for you to, to, to believe later. Practice now how to hear wisdom from your parents, from your church, from God's word, from Christ. Verse 30 and 31. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. This is a judgment. There's no question about what's happening here. There's no declaration of God. There's no declaration of repentance. There's there's a judgment. God has, he he did hear the full testimony of what he could have known and what he could have believed. And he could have even responded there with Perez. But he died. And it's pretty amazing what's happening in this passage because 
one of the great civilizations and kingdoms is ending. And, and, and the, the second stage of, the, day, of the, the, the dream we saw in chapter 2 is beginning. And Darius and Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. Again, there, there's, there's, there's no promise of tomorrow. The key here is if you hear the voice of God, if you hear the invitation... I, I do have these sin problems. I do have these desires that don't make any sense. I do have these desires I cannot tame. I do have the, this sin problem, this guilt that I cannot quench. You cannot fix it yourself. You need help from outside. And Jesus Christ, who died and rose, he alone can and will help you if you ask him. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you have not left us alone in our misery of a world where we do not give you thanks or honor, but only just make gods that are as foolish as we are and seek to order our lives around them. We thank you that you have revealed your glory. We thank you that you've revealed yourself in your grace to invite us up to know you and so we can know who we are, so we can know your son and the salvation you've given us. Lord, if there's anyone here who does not know you and is burdened with sin, Lord, I pray they would not leave without talking to someone. To find the power of your salvation by believing in you, Father, and your Son, Jesus Christ, and the gospel you've given us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.